Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Now I have heard everything, because apparently the moon is shrinking. Lunar shrinkage. It's actually a thing. And actually, the ground on the moon isn't as stable as we think. It's susceptible to quite a few geological events, like earthquakes. Well, I guess moonquakes. And yet, here we are ready to go back to the moon and establish bases there. Well, Dr. Tom Waters is a planetary scientist at the Smithsonian Institute's National Air and Space Museum and joins us now. Dr. Waters, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. How is the moon shrinking? Well, it, the moon, uh, contrary to most people uh, thinking about the moon, the moon is still an active body. It still has a very hot interior that is cooling down. And as it cools, uh, it shrinks internally. And then the crust, the outermost layer, has to adjust to that change in volume. So that causes um, these very small thrust faults that occur all over the moon. These are faults that are that are the result of the contraction. And we've looked at those globally, and it turns out when you look at all of them, it amounts to about 160 feet of uh, change in the diameter of the moon. So, yeah, the diameter, not circumference, over probably the last, 10 uh, to 100 million years. So it's not very much. You're never going to notice it. Right, but it, it does sound like the, even the surface of the moon is a little more unstable than we realize. Well, we have from the Apollo seismometers uh, that were, again, de- deployed by the uh, Apollo astronauts 50 years ago, we know that the moon is seismically, seismically active, and we reanalyzed that data uh, from those seismometers and found that we could connect them to these young faults, these young contractional faults. So it's not so much, uh, again, a, a danger to the Artemis astronauts uh, that will be going to the moon hopefully here in a couple of years. It's more of an issue for long-term bases. Uh, just like on Earth, uh, you know, you don't worry about walking around on the San Andreas fault that you're going to be necessarily hit by an earthquake as you're just walking around the area. If you build a house on the San Andreas, then you have something else to worry about because in the long run, you're probably eventually, the probability is you're going to have an earthquake. And that's the same thing on the moon. The the real concern is more for long-term habitats on the moon uh, rather than short-term missions like the Artemis missions. Okay, are we but it's planning though? To keep in mind. Right. Are we planning then for those longer term things? We are. <clears throat> we are. The idea is now to go back to the moon and stay there. Um, so, yes, long term habitats are being uh, discussed and planned. 
And that's the kind of thing we've never done something like that before. Are we kind of uh, behind on this one? We had a lot of time to plan this. No, I, I wouldn't say that we're behind on it. I think it's just a natural evolution of where we've been going with our exploration of space. That the moon is ultimately going to be a stepping stone to get to to a Mars mission. Um, and so I think it's just it's just a natural progression of us moving outward in the solar system. But what is the difference between like going planning for a surface kind of dwelling on Mars versus planning for that on the moon? Those two things seem like with the atmospheres and everything, they'd be very different. They will be to an extent. On the moon, you have to worry about um, uh, energetic events coming from the sun. So you want to be in a situation where you can actually go to a shielded area if you need to, if there's a large solar flare. You wouldn't have that much of a worry on Mars because uh, it's just because of the distance, the increased distance from the sun. And the atmosphere does give you some protection on Mars um, from those kind of events. And Mars has an ionosphere, which the moon does not have. Right. So you so, talk. You yeah, talk- it would be. It, yeah, it would be different, but but not radically. Right. You, you talked about like, you know, the buildings have to be able to withstand the kind of disruption like a moonquake or something or something like that. Right. So how do we how does a moonquake differ perhaps from an earthquake? Like how does gravity impact that? Yeah, a moonquake, even a, a moderate scale moonquake, like one of the most powerful quakes that that we recorded from the Apollo seismometers occurred near the South Pole, and it was about a five on the Richter scale. And that may not seem uh, like much compared to to some of the larger earthquakes uh, that occur here on this planet, but because you have uh, the you know one sixth the gravity on the Moon, even a moderate amount of shaking from an earthquake is going to feel very different and it lasts much longer on the moon than it does on the earth. Typically an earthquake will last minutes at most on the moon. They can last for hours. Really? Um, and so, yeah, it, it, even a five, if you're walking along on the moon, a five on the Richter scale could knock you off your feet if you're close enough to the source. But not on earth. No, no, you wouldn't expect to be to be knocked off your feet by a five. It'll feel you'll feel it, but not enough to really make you, uh, you know, bring you off your feet. Dr. Waters, this is a pretty exciting time, isn't it? For all of the potential for this establishing bases on places like the moon and Mars. Oh, it is. We just had a successful launch of intuitive machines. Uh, probe to going to that will land near the South Pole of the Moon. So that's really good news that that launch went well and everything seems to be good right now for uh, us landing on the Moon sometime around the 22nd of February. Mm, looking forward to it. Uh, thanks so much for talking to us about it today. Oh, my pleasure. Appreciate that. Dr. Tom Waters is a planetary scientist at the Smithsonian Institute's National Air and Space Museum. We are going back to the moon. So, yes, we do have to think about things like moon quakes and the unstable surface air. And I'm going to say it again. I've said it before. You should watch For All Mankind on Apple TV. Great show about going to the moon and beyond to Mars in the latest season, actually, that just wrapped up there. I love that show. This is Mornings with Simi. 
I love this next story that we're going to talk about with Scott Schentz because we know there are people who take advantage of pretty much anything that is good. And that's just the nature of humans. That is just our psychological makeup, right? It always happens. But now there might be some payback on that front. And Scott is with us to talk about that this morning. Good morning. Hi, Simi. A reckoning is coming. I love it. I love it too. Yeah, we've talked a lot. And first of all, I would like to say that I don't think that we're necessarily um, pre-programmed to take advantage of situations that are put out before us. I just think that in a oh, world- I think it happens. It's inevitable. I think it happens. I think it happens. I just, you know, I think that it doesn't, it, it doesn't have to happen. And I think we've gotten, a, a lot of people have gotten a little bit too liberal with taking advantage of some of these policies, specifically return policies. That's something that you and I have talked a lot about. It's almost become like a running gag in society of like, guess what I returned? A Christmas tree to Costco that I've used for 10 years and they took it back. And well, it, it becomes a joke. And this started, I think we talked about it last week when there was a woman who seemed quite proud of herself on TikTok because she returned a couch years later to Costco because she just didn't like it anymore. And I thought, well, that's ridiculous because now if I were Costco, I would change my return policy because of people like that. Yeah. And the thing is, companies like this put in return policies as a way to serve the customer and to try to, you know, grow customer loyalty and keep people coming back. The idea behind it is good, but then it's people like Couch Girl who ruin it for the rest of us. Like Costco's going to change. But then again, if we're not taking advantage of it, it's not really ruining it. But the story that I found... Timmy, and I loved this. This is from New York Magazine. They have a fashion section called The Cut. And a lot of people buy clothes online. It's not an uncommon thing. I've done it. We've all done it. But what these two companies, one website is called ASOS. I've bought shoes from there, ASOS. And then Essence is another one. They're both like you know, pretty legitimate fashion retailers, and both have taken it upon themselves to ban certain customers for returning too many items. Now, I know that people do this. What they'll say is, well, I'm just going to order three of them and whichever one I like, I'm going to keep, I'm going to return the other two. Yeah. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. They're not sa- they're not just saying, oh, you can't return anymore. They're saying you can't even buy from us anymore. Like we don't even want your money. You're a bad person and you've been grifting <laughs> and you can't do this. And now they, they do say like, yes, this is a common thing. Like you, it's okay to buy two or three of a thing and, and then return them. But if you think that you're like taking, you know, buying three or four things um, and then wearing them and then returning them, the companies are saying that they're aware of what's going on here. They're smarter than that. And that's going to stop because those items that you're trying on and wearing, they're not getting resold. They're going into a landfill and you're eating into the company's bottom line. It's just, it's a terrible thing to do. It's going to make things more expensive over the long term, And what you're talking about, ordering two or three things so you can try on a different size or a different style, see how it fits, and then send the rest back, that's fine. But there are stories, Simi, of people ordering hundreds of dollars, like like dozens and dozens of, of clothing items, using one and then returning the rest. And people who may be using them for, I don't know, a photo shoot or like hmm. a, a fashion blog, that type of thing. So they call it excessive return rate. And so if, if I've identified you as a customer with an excessive return rate, for instance, there are people who, who shop and use it as though it's a fitting room 
as opposed to you're buying these items. As in, I want to try this stuff on, so I'm going to buy it, and then I'm just going to return what I don't like. And so that's, that's what they say. They identify. And what I like about this now is that they can target the actual, rather yes. than punishing everybody by saying we're changing our return policies, they are targeting the people who specifically have an excessive return rate. For instance, the example person that they have in their article is someone who says that she has been steadily returning items to this particular outlet, this Urban Outfitters in this case, once a month since high school. That's insane. Since she said without problems. She's been doing it for years. So she just orders a bunch of stuff like $200 worth of stuff, returns $100 of it, keeps $100 of it, and they've just decided that they've had enough. Yeah, absolutely. They, they Oftentimes, companies pay for the shipping, so that's a cost for them. Sometimes the stuff gets damaged, or maybe people, like we all know people that do this, they'll buy something, order something, wear it once, like, hey, I'm going to a fancy event, I need a tuxedo. Wear it once, and then return it. We all know people that have done that, and companies are just starting to say, forget that. We're Like, we're not idiots, and you're not pulling some very... A genius scam and it's over. And I feel like this, Simi, could be a, a shift back towards common sense. You know, I like I that. So. I really, that company, like a few companies have seen other companies do it and they're thinking, well, if they're doing it, we should do it too. Let's look at the math. We're losing money on all these returns. And I also just don't like the idea that people are feeling so darn entitled. <laughs> I don't. I think just to play devil's advocate here for a second, I think what some of them would say is, well, listen, they want us to buy online. I can't go to the store. There's no like ASOS store that you can go to and figure out what your size is. Right. Which is something that I've done in the past is that I will go to the physical store, try a few things on to figure out what my size is. And if they don't have it there and then buy it online. Right. But you can't do that with some of these because these are strictly online outlets. So allow me to be devil's advocate. Is it fair then to punish people when you don't have a place where they can go and try these clothes on? Well, I think, okay, I think that it's, It's a case-by-case basis, and like you say, it's cool that they can do this on a case-by-case basis because, yes, we've all done that, and I've ordered two of something and sent one back, but I don't do it every month. Like, who are we really doing this every month, like ordering a pair of shoes? Yeah, that's a lot. That feels like a lot, right? Don't get me wrong. I agree with you. I was just playing devil's advocate there. Yeah, and I think that, you know, if you do that two times a year— one, three times, once a year, you know, like that's, uh, and I know people buy things a little more regularly than that, but you know, they have size charts. They have really accurate size charts and companies are starting to be a little bit more um, focused on their sizing so that they don't have to deal with this. Interesting. Yeah. Almost a billion dollars worth of returns last year we're yeah. talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, insane. Yeah, I love this. Scott, thank you. A return to common sense. Oh, nice. Simi. Nice, Scott. Uh, do you agree with this? Do you think, no, they should let people just return whatever they want? Or do you think, no, no, people are abusing this. If you've got a story too, would love to hear it. This is Mornings with Simi. We're trying to unravel the mystery of what happened with Richmond City Council, the safe consumption site this week. Well, Vaughn Palmer is going to help us out with that now. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. And for the sake of completeness, I should acknowledge that I was looking out my window here in Victoria a few moments ago. And there's something happening outside that, as you know, I always say never happens in Victoria. It does sort of look like, well, I have to admit, Snow. What? What? It's not sticking. Okay, I want that completely clear. It is not sticking. 
and but it's not my imagination either. Uh, it's cold here, and it was raining, and I guess some of it just decided to turn into snow. I, I wish you had given us a heads up on this. We could have played the breaking news sounder because <laughs> <laughs> that seems like kind of a big deal, Vaughn. Yeah, I'm sure it'll be gone by the time we get off the air or whatever. Okay. Anyway, there you go. I'll check in with you at the end of the segment. We'll see how it's going on that one. Uh, okay, breaking weather news from Vaughn Palmer on that one. Snow in Victoria right now, but now we're going to talk about what's been going on in Richmond this past week, because I'm confused. What the heck happened here? It's election year. <laughs> there's, oh, your, there's your executive summary. Um, for unfathomable reasons, really, politically, uh, the Richmond Council decided that uh, this would be a nifty time to have a debate about establishing a safe injection site in a community that manifestly does not want one. There was an enormous eruption over two days at Richmond Council, uh, angry, really nasty stuff that, alas, has gone right across Canada. And uh, what, uh, 16,000 names on a petition rustled up very quickly by the community. Um, In the middle of all this, I think the Premier put it well for the government when he said... um, we're wondering why they're doing this at this time. <laughs> yeah. And he didn't mean, why are you doing it on Tuesday? He meant, I think, why are you doing it in an election year? So council voted Tuesday night anyway to go ahead, seven to two, right? Mayor leading the way, Cash Heed, former BC Liberal cabinet minister leading the way. The next day, Wednesday, a full 24 hours have not passed. Vancouver Coastal Health, which actually has some power over this, because Richmond Council can't establish this thing on their own, uh, Vancouver Coastal Health said, no, it's not the right project and it's not the right time and we don't think it's needed and uh, it's not going to happen. So then you got the political clue on this. Uh, uh, Henry Yao, who's he? Well, he is one of the three NDP MLAs from Richmond who's running for re-election this year. And he goes on to social media yesterday, his ex-account, people can look it up, a five-part posting that advises his constituents that he's been on the case right from the beginning. And yes, the provincial government is very worried about the overdose crisis and about the need for safer supply and all that stuff. But he says, we think that these projects, that what we do must be appropriate to the community. And this wasn't appropriate to the community. And it's not going to happen. Don't thank me. I've just been out there working on your behalf to make sure it doesn't happen and it isn't going to happen. And that's the end of it. And, you know, it's election year. Yeah, I guess so. I just thought, didn't anybody talk to anybody beforehand <laughs> about this? Like, yeah, what happened? I love Cash Heat and all this, right? Yeah. Because we lean on Cash Heat an awful lot in the news media because he's a former police chief and a former solicitor general who had to step down twice as solicitor general. He doesn't appreciate that, being reminded of that. But in any event, uh, knows his stuff and is willing to talk. And he's out there saying, oh, this is terribly cynical, you know, government's worried about losing its three seats in Richmond. Yes, they are. It's election year. And if you want to get politicians to do something on your behalf, the best time to put pressure on them is an election year. After they've won a majority, the next election is four years away. Who's worried about that? Like, this is 
responsiveness time for provincial politicians, and that's what's going on at Richmond. And I guess when it gets around to it, someone in the premier's office must be asking, were any new Democrats involved in this idiotic idea in the first place? Yeah. Uh, because we don't ever want to hear their names again and they can forget about any favors from the premier's office if they were involved. Yeah, I would wonder if anyone at Vancouver Coastal Health is holding some emergency meetings about that, saying, who who did this? Like, who thought this was a good idea? The interesting thing about this, the other interesting thing about this is in EB's comments on Tuesday. So the premier, it's been remarked before, David EB is one of the best briefed premiers we've had. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Had in this province. He rarely gets caught by surprise. And when he was asked about this on Tuesday, he said, you know, Vancouver Coastal is looking into this and trying to figure out um, why the project at this time. So the premier had already been briefed. He knew it was coming, knew the question was coming. He was ready for it. So I think, you know, as soon as this thing blew up, and it blew up over the weekend because of the petition and the first meeting at council on Monday, which spilled over into Tuesday, somebody in the premier's office, somebody in charge of damage control, went to Vancouver Coastal and said, are you the idiots behind this idea? And Vancouver Coastal said, no, not us. This isn't our idea. We are wondering where the hell this came from, too. So it's, it's interesting to just see how the provincial government responds quickly and diffuses the issue quickly yeah. and makes sure that no one's going to hang this on a new Democrat, this idea. Malcolm Brody, the mayor of Richmond, is not a longtime new Democrat. And Cash Heed, you can't blame him as a new Democrat either. So it's, it's quite interesting how this whole thing came unraveled. We are back with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Vaughn, quick weather check. Is it still snowing in Victoria? Um, hmm. I, that may have been my imagination. I'm, I take it back. Uh, Victoria... <laughs> Travel Bureau better not file a complaint to me yeah. and try to evict me. No, That's but it. it did. It did look like briefly snow here. Maybe briefly. wet snow. Uh, uh, you know, I'm not outside. I'm kind of looking out the window. But uh, as I said, it, I'm, I'm old. That may be just my need. It was my probably glasses. just my some eyeglasses. Wet snow. Or something like that. It was just Fantasy. wet snow. Yeah. Yeah. We're gonna take yeah. your word for it. Like we believe you when you tell us something. <laughs> 
let's, let's. I know this is doing wonders for my credibility, isn't it? Oh yeah, hey. I love it. Oh God, now what's he done over there? God, Can't believe snowing. him. He said it was snowing in Victoria yeah, yesterday. This morning, he's imagining a snowstorm. <laughs> uh, let's. Hey. I want to talk about the infrastructure story here too, because I know there's a lot of um, yeah. uproar about the federal minister oh. Stephen Gibo talking about this. Oh, the federal government's not going to invest in road infrastructure. And I thought, you know, if you're the prime minister, if you don't haul that guy in right now and say, what the heck are you doing? You're creating more problems here because already you had Premier David Eby saying, what is going on? Oh, yeah. No, the premier was announcing flood control measures out in Abbotsford yesterday, major infrastructure announcement and all that. But when we get to the news media questions, the premier jumps on the federal environment minister and says, yeah, nervous, makes me nervous. The federal environment minister says, you know what? We're not going to pay for federal government. are not going to pay for building highways anymore. Highways, you know, take public transit, ride your bike, right? This is the green era we're going into, and we're not going to pay to build roads. And <laughs> he's got a bunch of proposals uh, that in front of the federal government where the province is saying we need help. Highway 1, for instance, one of the major routes for moving goods back and forth in Canada. Uh, and it needs serious upgrading and the province, uh, Ottawa has been helping and the province needs more help. Uh, replacement of the Massey Tunnel, province is looking for help on that. And the premier said he's incredibly disappointed at these comments and he is going to be in touch with the prime minister seeking clarification. Uh, David Eby will probably have to take a number on that one because I think most of the premiers in the country and a significant number of municipal officials and Lord only knows how many elected BC Liberal MPs are going to want that comment explained as well. I see the minister is busy clarifying what he actually meant to say. Right. So I think this is a dead letter, but it, it one of the fascinating things about a government that's in trouble is the way members of the government seem to find new ways to generate negative stories about the government. Yes. Bad enough the federal libs are dealing with the arrive can thing this week and all the other problems, but Whose idea was it to hand an issue like this to the opposition and to all the premiers in the country? I see Premier Doug Ford is out saying, yeah, well, you know, he might be able to ride his bike to work, but most of the people in Ontario can't do that. And that's true. Such an own goal on that one. Oh, that's incredible. When there's an election and, coming and up said, in Ottawa. Yeah, that isn't what I had in mind. I, I, his first clarification was, you know, I was just talking about a project in Quebec. Oh, that won't make things worse, will it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, I, that one I really shook my head. I thought, I'm sure that's not what he meant, but also, oh, what sure are you what doing? What yeah, are you no, doing? No. Um, no. Now, yesterday we were previewing this, Vaughn, and you were absolutely right. We heard from Mike DeYoung yesterday. He is leaving provincial politics. Yeah, and it was a really nice press conference uh, at the legislature uh, where DeYoung served for 30 years. And it's really interesting to hear a provincial politician say it was fun being a member of the legislature. It was a joy that he's sorry that some people leave provincial politics with bitterness, but he doesn't. He said when he came to the legislature, 
He always felt what a great honor and a privilege it was to represent his constituents and British Columbians there, uh, that he always tried to keep the stuff back and forth across the aisle. He said, you know me. He said, I'm a very effective critic and a, and a good defender, but he tried to keep it from becoming personal. So it was, it was quite nice to hear uh, and, you know, uh, he's one of the, not just the longest serving member of the legislature right now, and Mike Farmworth is the only one who's close, but he's one of the longest serving MLAs in the whole history of the BC legislature. Wow. Keith Baldry and I sat down and looked at the at the election records yesterday, and we found one MLA who served for 40 years, but it's very difficult to find one who even served 30 years. W.A.C. Bennett did, uh, Frank Calder, the first Indigenous person elected the legislature, served 30 years, but DeYoung is in a very small group of people that have managed to win that many elections and serve that long in the legislature. That is impressive, but he still hasn't decided what he's going to do. Uh, he said that, uh, <laughs> I said, I understand you have a place in France. Are you really thinking of running for federal politics and going to Ottawa, or are you thinking of retiring to your place in France? And he said, he said, well, uh, <laughs> he had a funny line, his wife is French. And he said, my wife told me that if you go to a news conference and you say you're retiring to spend more time with your family, I'm putting out a news release saying, I don't want to see you that much. <laughs> <laughs> and back, it turned out my family didn't want to spend more time with me. So anyway, he's, yes, he's thinking about federal politics. He said he's got to work some things out there yet. He says he's only 60 years old. Uh, he's not interested in doing nothing. So even though his wine cellar in France beckons, uh, it sounds to me like he's going to think about running federally for Ottawa. He's asked about the BC United Party's chances in the election this year. He's very interesting. DeYoung said it's going to be tough, honestly. We're facing a very tough fight. But he said, I'll remind you that the first time I got elected to the B.C. legislature, way back in 1993, he said, I ran as a B.C. liberal in the Fraser Valley. That was not a winning brand. He said, I had opponents, Family Coalition Party, Reform Party B.C., and one of the most famous politicians then in the province, Grace McCarthy, leader of the Social Credit Party. They all ran against him. And DeYoung said, I won by 42 votes. So he said, don't tell me. Every vote counts. And he said, I've run in elections where I was expected to lose and won. And he said, I've run in elections where I was expected to win. We party was expected to win and lost. So he said, you know, it's, the election's still six months away. A lot can happen. I think he's right about that. Everybody knows how to bet this year but the election is still six months away. Also, it was nice to hear tributes from like both yeah. sides of the aisle for him. Yeah, the premier himself was very good on that. He was asked yesterday and he said, look, Mike DeYoung and I have disagreed about many things, including many things on the floor of the legislature because Evie in opposition was DeYoung's critic and DeYoung in opposition has been Evie's critic. He said, we've argued a lot of issues in the House, but he said, we tried never to make it personal. It's possible to argue in depth about issues, disagree profoundly, and still not make it personal. And he said he always appreciated that about DeYoung. And DeYoung said that he liked that aspect of politics as well. Uh, you know, what a novel idea know, that you can disagree that. profoundly and still not treat each other like, you know, 
trash and wouldn't that be nice dirt and threats it's wouldn't great. that be nice if we could all do that Vaughn thank yeah. you okay bye bye that's Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun this is mornings with Simi well the celebration over the candidate at Evernorth Health Services we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. City Chiefs' latest Super Bowl victory lasted pretty much until the parade started yesterday, and then it seemed to all go horribly wrong. Now, for the latest on that situation, we're joined now by Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. So what do we know at this time about how many people were injured? Like, what happened? Well, so what we understand, at least to now, with the information that's been released by local police, uh, is that more than 20 people were injured uh, during this shooting. And we know that at least one person uh, died as a result of that shooting. And from information that's come out from within the local community, we understand that the one person who died was actually um, a, a member of a local radio station uh, who lost her life being at this uh, at this parade. Uh, the details are are incredibly minimal at this point. We understand that three people are in police custody. We don't have charges that were laid as of yet. And we know that while there have been weapons that have been recovered from the scene, uh, police have so far not been able to discuss a motive. They haven't been able to go beyond anything other than an incident took place. There's a lot of questions here. There's a lot of questions surrounding security, a lot of questions surrounding gun and gun safety. We've heard from the president, but ultimately this is a scene that the United States has been through so many times before. Okay, so as it was unfolding, it seems like the parade was still going on. Or the, par- the the players were on the stage, right? When the kind of shots broke out. From from what we understand, I mean, the the video is, is kind of sparse from what we're able to gather here. Um, you know, there were there were thousands upon thousands of people that were outside that you could see running. We understand the players were inside. Some of those players took to social media in the moments afterwards. Um, you know, to to pray for for Kansas City to to kind of offer their thoughts and prayers to the people who were uh, impacted by this. Um, but and, and there's been some video as well of, of people tackling somebody uh, on onto the ground that police ultimately then took away. Police chief in Kansas City has said that that person is still just uh, in custody, that they are a person of interest. But again, there's been no kind of charges here. So there's a whole lot that we don't actually know about this other than uh, a significant number of the people who were shot were under the age of 18. Uh, there was a local children's hospital uh, that Global News spoke to oh. that, that said 11 or 12 of the victims they were treating were were at least under 18 if it's at a children's hospital. So I mean, you know, the, the outcome of this you know, one person died. It's tragic. But the, the fact that there are still several people listed in, in, in critical to life threatening condition, this could change as the day goes. Oh, Reggie, this seems a little bit unusual in that usually American law enforcement authorities are 
they they seem to talk more about these situations. I feel like there's still a lot of confusion about this one. It's been almost 24 hours. Yeah, I mean, look, number one, um, th- there are questions as to why there wasn't a lot of security uh, or checkpoints in place, given the fact that there was something like a million people expected to, to kind of descend upon Kansas City uh, for this. So there are going to be questions to law enforcement as to, uh, you know, whether there was a delay in getting to the, the scene or whether there were simply not enough checkpoints in place to allow anybody to show up. At the same time, while law enforcement is going to to face some scrutiny here, uh, there are words coming from the highest office uh, in this country with, with, with President Biden putting a statement out uh, saying that uh, – that that this this kind of event should shock the country it should shame the country and should move the country into acting to do something about gun violence look this was the 48th or 49th mass shooting this year alone um, kansas city joining dozens of other cities around the country the president pushing to try and do more after the executive action that he's taken already um, but this this is now a city that that finds itself becoming a shoulder for what is likely going to be the next city even as it still tries to figure out exactly what went wrong right and because there were a lot of politicians like the governor was were there of kansas and missouri it was it was a very high profile event you would think that there would have been a pretty heavy police presence yeah sure i mean you, look you heard uh, state politicians local politicians uh, the mayor of the city uh, uh, leading members of, of the police force all saying that they were in attendance at this that they were you know forced themselves to try and run or duck and take cover at the time that this um that these shots uh, were fired in and around um you know the event space and and the nearby train station, um, you know, and to, to, to hear police say that they've recovered not just one gun, but multiple guns oh, from uh, from the scene speaks to a fact that this could have been much worse than than how bad uh, it already seems to be. All right, Reggie, thank you so much for that. Thank you. That is Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. So at some point today, we do expect much more information to come from law enforcement authorities in Kansas City. Uh, They have multiple people that have been arrested and are still being held. Were there multiple shooters? I know that right now in the American media in particular, there's all sorts of stories about people. This was the person who took down this shooter. And there's a couple of people who took down different alleged shooters in this case. So there's a lot of confusion about this story. And hopefully we'll get an update for you. You'll be hearing it in the news today. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about going electric. Which industry really needs to do this? Well, our Scott Schoenz is with us now to talk about that. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, Simi, you have a hybrid electric vehicle, right? I have a plug-in one, yes. Yeah, and love you, it. You like it. Okay, great. Now, when you bought that, because I know you got that semi-recently, right? About a year and a half. Okay. Did you feel pressure to get some sort of hybrid electric as opposed to getting a gas yeah, vehicle? Yeah, my wallet pressured me, yeah, Scott, because gas sure. prices were, I think, right around that time, about $2 or so. Okay. I had a gas vehicle. I want. I didn't want to go full electric, though, because we like taking road trips. And I'm an sure. anxious person already. I don't need more range anxiety right. when I'm traveling. So we got both. And I have to say, I like I come to work every day on electric. That's awesome. Yeah. And and that is one of the things that's great about electric vehicles. And there, there's so much out there, right? There's all of this talk around the need to electrify. Hey, we got to have no more combustion engines by 2035. And everyone I know who's buying a car is having these questions of, should I go electric or should I go gas? I feel like I have this responsibility, but I'm worried. It just feels like there's a lot of financial pressure on us, the consumer, 
to make these decisions to go electric, when in reality, there's a whole lot of people out there and a whole lot of industries that should also be taking some responsibility. Like, think about shipping and transportation, semi-trucks, tractor trailers, all over the roads, and no one is talking about electrifying those. Enter company Range Energy. Now, I discovered this company sort of through a podcast. I'm a car guy. I like to listen and read about car stuff. And they are doing something that I think is very, very innovative and cool that no one else is doing and deserves to be talked about. So a semi-truck costs between $250,000 and $500,000. The cost to replace one of those or replace a fleet of those is insane. But what if, Simi, we could modify not the truck, but the trailer, just the trailer, where it's just like a floating wheel back there, put an electric motor back there. What difference would that make? So that's what this company, Range Energy, is doing. And I talked to the CEO. His name is Ali Javadan. He used to work for Tesla, it, like did a lot of the like uh, prototyping and stuff with Tesla. And now he's moved on to electrifying trailers. And I asked him, so why? Like why this push to do the trailer and not the truck? Yeah, so um, we have relied on trailers for many things and, and trailers are used in commercial transport, they're used in recreation, they're used uh, for, for a whole host of things. And if you start looking closely, you'll see the trailers are everywhere. And really, there hasn't ever been any uh, innovation or intelligence brought to the trailer. Um, trailers also create a huge uh, uh, energy burden for whatever is towing it. And so, for example, a diesel tractor uh, uh, that gets, let's say, 11 or 12 miles per gallon, as soon as it hooks up to a, a, a loaded up trailer, that, that goes immediately down to five or six miles per gallon. And, and, and so if we add um, some intelligence uh, in the right places and some electrification into the trailer, not only can we make this trailer now do all of its own work and, and reclaim all of that efficiency back into the system, but now we've built an inherent safety system into the trailer. And so long story short, we're electrifying trailers, part of this kind of electrify everything revolution. Uh, but, but we believe that electrifying the trailers uh, can be a key enabler for uh, allowing uh, these large commercial industries to decarbonize. And so our first product is a class eight uh, trailer, which is kind of what's hooked up to all the big rigs on the road uh, um, uh, and it's, it's really allowing these fleets to decarbonize in a pl- practical way, allowing them to utilize their existing assets that they have, but decarbonize those existing assets in a, in a very, very big way, as much as 75% fewer harmful diesel emissions coming out of your existing tractor, no matter how old or new it is. And, and we extend the range of, of all the new electric stuff that's, that's coming onto the market. So. It's kind of a win-win for the industry. It it really feels like it, and you know, one of my first reactions when I when I heard you talking about this initially was, when I think about electrification, I think, oh, is my next vehicle going to be hybrid or electric? And look at all these Teslas, and it's all just like consumer products, and it's probably yep. because, like you say. We don't notice all these trailers around us. They're just this almost, in our minds, kind of like a big inconvenience. You know, we want our products. We want the things that we have. But when you get caught behind one, you're like, oh, trail, you know, but that's a huge part of how the entire economy functions. It it almost seems like it was forgotten in the electrification process. Yeah, I think we don't exactly know why trailers have been ignored for so long. In fact, you know, tra- electrifying trailers uh, and adding intelligence and safety to trailers is, is even a concept that we talked about in the very early days of Tesla. 
and even then, we were kind of looking at the whole global eco- ecosystem of what needs to be, what else happens when you electrify the vehicles. And, and one of the concepts that was talked about back then was uh, electrifying the trailers. And that was kind of a, a fun little side project that uh, a few of the engineers at Tesla had, had done for themselves. And, and it was just a, you know, kind of like a little flash in the pan. And, and everybody just kind of agreed, well, we got to focus on bringing vehicles to the road somebody eventually will take care of the trailers. And and so fast forward to 2021, I realized that nobody's doing anything with the trailers. This is a big opportunity, not only to build a business off of, but to, to make a marked increase in our over-the-road efficiency. We've been able to put this together at, at a fraction of the cost of what a vehicle would be if, if we were to do a full vehicle. So it's really cool. Like, and to think about, you know, this thing that was kind of forgotten about and or like sort of put to the side that it's going to actually like advance the industry and is even pioneering some some cool new technology. But you mentioned the cost before. And the other thing that I really like about this is it sort of feels like, you know, like we have hybrids and then we got plug in hybrids and then it's like full electric. This feels almost like a step in between. It's like, hey, we don't have to go all the way first. Let's help companies. They don't have to, like you say, redesign their entire fleet. This can be a thing, almost like an upgrade that, like you say, really, really, and you don't have to spend a whole bunch of money. It's like cheaper to produce, cheaper to implement. And it's, I think that's always going, that has always been a key with electrification is it has to save people money and that's, what's going to get people on board. Yeah. I think, you know, I think that the highlight of, of what we're building is that we, our trailer can double your gas mileage and cut your diesel emissions, your harmful diesel emissions by three quarters. And so, you know, that just doubling your gas mileage, if we're looking at some of our fleets that have, 20 or $30 million a month gas bills, uh, fuel bills. This is like, you know, bonkers, right? And so uh, as far as the cost goes, one of the nice things about doing the trailer is because the trailer is not the primary mover and let's say things as simple as a windshield and windshield wipers and a radio system and air conditioning and all the driver comforts, we just don't need to worry about that. It's, it's all built into, you know, it's a fully industrialized system that, that clips essentially to the bottom of any of these dry vans and reefer trailers that are on the road today. And, and uh, this also allows the, the fleets to uh, charge at the loading docks. We don't need megawatt charging. We could actually use uh, automotive grade um, level two and level three charging to charge these trailers over the road. That's Ali Javadan. He is the CEO of Range Energy. They put these electric axles on semi-trucks that already exist. It's not a new trailer. They retrofit the old trailer, and it cuts gas mileage in half. I love this, right? Why aren't we doing this? Don't tell me to spend $60,000 on a new car. Get the semi-trucks to do this and make everything cheaper. What about the charging capability? Like a lot of people wonder, do we have the capacity for stuff like this? Well, I mean, like if we do, like let's put the burden to install that on these big companies that are paying for the shipping and we can pay for it with all the money that they're yeah. saving on gas. I mean, I don't know. I'm not like a, an industrialist or anything, but it makes a lot of sense in my mind. Look at you with the ideas. Thank you for that, Scott. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> that is our Scott Johnson. If you want to weigh in on that, let's hear from you. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Based on evaluation of 2023 performance, this is where you have not met Cloudflare expectations for performance. We've decided to part ways with you. Yeah, I'm going to stop you right there. Sure. So I started August 25th. I've been on a three-month ramp, and then a week of Christmas, and then here we are. 
yeah, that's somebody getting laid off. I mean, have you ever been laid off? I have. It is not fun. It can feel a bit humiliating, certainly humbling, shocking even. I mean, there's a lot to process in that moment when it's happening. So why, why, why would someone want to film themselves getting laid off? But as you just heard, it is happening. It is one of these social media trends. That was Brittany Peach. And that video has been viewed millions of times by people. Is this a, a new thing that this younger generation does that they're going to advertise even the moment that they get uh, laid off? How is this changing the workplace? Well, joining us now is Jason Dorsey, generational researcher, speaker, and author of Z Economy, How Gen Z Will Change the Future of Business. Jason, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Glad it, to be with you and talk about such an exciting topic. Is it exciting? Because <laughs> I'm still shaking my head. Like, why would somebody want to advertise this? Well, there's a number of reasons. You know, we're generational researchers. And what we see with Gen Z in particular is that they've grown up on social media documenting many of their most emotional events, right? Breakups, college acceptance, getting their first job. And so it only makes sense that they would also document getting fired or laid off. And part of it we see is a feedback loop that it creates where they post it, for example, on TikTok, where it's very popular. And then other people jump on and say, oh, this is terrible. Oh, we feel for you. Oh, I've been through this. You know, you're going to make it and, and that sort of thing. So you, we definitely see that's how they often share experiences that are highly emotional, particularly around work and just becoming adults. So they're looking the for side, validation. Sorry? They're looking for validation. Yeah, yeah validation and also frequently just empathy. Right. Many of them entered the workforce later than previous generations. So statistically, they joined the workforce later. They often have less work experience at that age. Accordingly, they haven't been through this before. They don't know if it's normal. Did it happen right? What am I going to do? Will anybody else hire me? So it's a way to sort of share that experience and know that they're not alone and also oftentimes get encouragement and so forth. The problem is that we believe it's going to follow many of them. So if the goal was empathy and sort of being in that experience together so we can get through it together. That's one thing. But I think what we're seeing now is it can prove to be a bit short-sighted, particularly if some of these are more popular. And now people are going, well, do I want to hire somebody who's going to document what's going on with our work and share it publicly? So it's creating a lot of tension in the workplace, particularly with managers. Like, should you even let somebody film you when you're laying them off. Oftentimes there's various rules uh, at a place of employment. So it's a pretty complex issue, but it's absolutely happening now more than ever. And I think everybody's shocked at the response. Yeah, I, I was thinking exactly what you just said there. If I'm a manager and you, <laughs> you know, you're looking to hire somebody, I don't think I want to hire the person like who's going to advertise this because there's two sides to this. Like, What if that person, and I'm just using this as a hypothetical, what if that person wasn't a great employee and they are a bit delusional about the kind of employee that they were, right? And so now the manager looks bad, but they're thinking, listen, we were justified in getting rid of this person. Yeah, I, I think you hit it right on the head, which is there's definitely two perspectives. One is the perspective from the employee going, oftentimes, I don't think this is fair, or I don't understand, or I want to document this. And then you have the perspective of the manager who's going, I've got to abide by what I'm supposed to do in my role. Also, uh, the legal responsibilities as an employer, you know, following the right protocol, doing the things that need to be done when you're transitioning out an employee. So it, it's creating a situation that's actually quite divisive. And then think about the employees that stay there who are now seeing what happens. And that manager's yeah. got to go back to work. And now they're being asked, well, you know, am I next? I saw what you did with so-and-so. It's all over the Internet. 
So it, it ends up creating a lot more um, challenges and problems than sometimes we think in the moment, particularly for somebody who's younger and just wants to share it like they share all the other experiences in their lives. Also, who wants to go into HR if this is what's going to start happening? Because you're not, that wasn't your decision. That's just your job mm-hmm. to carry it out. And now you're the one who's going to be all over social media. Exactly. And, and that's often lost in this. You know, many times these decisions, particularly if we're talking about layoffs or reductions in force, those are made at a level that are often much higher than that frontline manager who's frequently put in the role of actually having to, to do the tough work of letting somebody go. And at the same time, I always think about the career of that manager. You know, now that's going to follow them, too, depending on how it all is played out um, on social media. So it's I don't think it's often negatively intentioned by the Gen Zers who we interview frequently. You know, they, they just want to share the experience with others. They're confused. They want to know they're not alone. All of that. You know, yeah, there's some of the influencer going on. Well, I could post this now and maybe I'll go viral too. And maybe it'll oh, lead boy. to my next job. But I don't really see you getting laid off filming it, you know, as a way to get the next job. Now, maybe you want to go into social media. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe that's the best way. But so, for many people, that's not going to attract them as an employer. So when you do interview this generation, then, Jason, do they, is there any concept at all of the potential consequences of this? Sure. But I think, unfortunately, what we're seeing uh, right now is that many in the generation don't feel sort of fully connected to their employers. And what I mean by that is, you know, we've gone through an awful time with COVID. We've seen the employer-employee relationship change. We've also seen very low unemployment in many places. So employees have a lot more options oftentimes than they did before. So when, when you sort of put it all together, we definitely see that there's this lingering consequence from it. And we think that, that Gen Z doesn't fully um, value the fact that this could be a long-term negative for them. And, and I would argue that that may not be generational as much as it's just life experience. You know, frequently you, you just don't know how these things can follow you. And there's sometimes a perception, uh, which is unfortunately incorrect, that says, you know, if I put it on my TikTok or I put it on my Instagram or I put it on something and maybe even it's set to private, that it won't be found. But what we're seeing is two things. One, employers are looking up social media of potential job candidates. It's absolutely happening. And whether or not people say it's allowed, it's 100% happening. There's no question about it. And the second is that things are increasingly searchable, you know, particularly with AI. Even if you don't have, you know, text in the post and you just post the video, what we're seeing is all of that is increasingly searchable. So, so what I always like to say is just because it may not be easy to find right now, it could be incredibly easy to find in six months or a year or two years. And, you know, as a professional in your career, do you want this following around to represent the best of who you are or what you want to put in the world? And some of them will still make that decision, but we think a lot of times they just they don't fully understand right. how this could follow them. Jason, in what universe do people not think that a potential employer is going to search social media? <laughs> in our universe. I mean, we meet Gen Zers all the time who tell us, you know, they can't do that. It's mine. I'm like, well, what? Yes, no, it's not yours. You're, you're it's broadcasting like... it. <laughs> you're putting it out to the world. You think you're the only person who's seen that? That's crazy. Well, they, they certainly don't think it's discoverable or they said it's a private and we all know, well, I should say we all know, but, but what we see from people more experienced know is that these things are findable. Very few things you put online ever stay hidden. And so this is something that truly can cast a shadow. And we're often talking, even by the way, with employers about how to message this to employees. You know, in many companies, you're not allowed to record on property. 
There's all kinds of rules around that and regulations. Um, and often sometimes Gen Z doesn't even know that. So just helping them to think through how to manage and navigate their career seems to be a really big value add for many Gen Zers. And, and frankly, I wish universities would teach more about that and even more of the secondary schools. Because if, if you don't know any better, it's all you know. And, and so at some point, it's on them to be able to learn and develop these skills. And at some point, it's on us as older generations uh, to take a moment to help them to understand why this isn't a great idea. Now, if they still do it, it's totally on them. <laughs> but, but I do like to give people the opportunity to succeed. <laughs> you know, Jason, I got to say, my mind is kind of blown by all this today. So listen, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Love being with you. Thank you so much for having me. That's Jason Dorsey, a generational researcher, speaker, and author of Z Economy, How Gen Z Will Change the Future of Business. My mind is blown that people do this stuff and they don't realize or think about what the consequences are. Now, if you've got an experience that you want to share with us, please do. Have you ever come across an employee who's like that, who just didn't think about the consequences of this kind of stuff? This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about homelessness and building more housing. This has all been the topic recently of this new BC Housing Summit that is going on. And there are some concerns about what is being discussed and what isn't being discussed at the BC Housing Summit. So joining us now is Catherine Room, the interim CEO of Atira Women's Resource Society. Thank you for joining us. Morning, Simi. So the BC Build announcement was a big one this week from the provincial government, and they're talking about building housing uh, for what they call the missing middle in this province. Did you have some concerns when you heard about this? Well, you know, 4,000 new units, that that's great, but I, I think we all agree it's a bit of a scale problem because there's five and a half million people in British Columbia, and you know, pretty much all of us are worried about where are our kids or our grandkids going to live. And um, so we can build for the missing middle. Uh, that's great. But I would just like to say, I, I think we need to remind government that we're not even maintaining the housing that we're currently invested in. What do you mean? Well, we talked before, you and I, about SROs. There are 7,000 people that live in single-room occupancy And we just had a coroner's inquest, which kind of reaffirmed for all of us, SROs are not appropriate housing. And I think governments have an interest in housing the poor, uh, the working poor, the precariously housed, the unhoused, because if we only take care of the missing middle and something happens, um, they, they can fall through the cracks. And without that infrastructure underneath, they will fall right onto the street. And, and that's an incredible worry. So housing really is many-tiered, and we need to fill all of it in. Has there not been a lot of discussion about replacing that single-room occupancy level of housing that we have? Well, I, I would love there to have been discussion. We invited the Minister of Housing to come to this housing and safety forum that we just held earlier this week. It was this amazing catalyst for positive change because the sector for supportive housing is completely united, but the missing person at the table is government. And, you know, in the face of radio silence, we we have heard that there is a replacement plan for SROs, but we haven't seen it. And, you know, really what we're talking about is how do you translate something from paper, um, and I'd like to see it, into action? So if there's a plan coming... What do you know about that plan? 
Yeah, um, not too much at the moment. And, you know, it's interesting at this forum, we had two city chiefs of fire rescue service. We had the deputy chief of the VPD. We had city councillors from three different communities that have SROs and precarious social housing. And uh, Karen Fry, who's the chief of Vancouver Fire, she was uh, talking about stats. They got called out to 400 fires in SROs just last year. So, you know, about one a day. And what she said was critical work needs to be done to improve living conditions. And if anyone is going to affect this change, it will be the people who are in the room at the Housing and Safety Forum. So BC Housing and the Ministry of Housing, they came, and I really appreciate that, but they didn't want to sit on a panel. And what we need is people to actively provide input into a working group that will help solve this. So are you concerned then, Catherine, that there is a plan being made or there's something happening and and you haven't really heard a whole lot about what the details of that, what the details might be? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's if we're going to talk about housing in any community in British Columbia, it's for the community. It needs to be with the community. And, you know, I, I do think that as a province in general, we're going to have to mobilize, not just wait for market conditions to compel units to be built or wait for the federal government or wait for zoning changes as a province to solve what is the issue that is right in front of us, which is housing at every level, I do think we actually have to use language around mobilization. And what I would love to see is in educational institutes, uh, trade schools, or in other uh, educational institutes, that that's a question that we ask young people. Okay, how are we going to solve this? What, how can we build? And we ask that question at city councils, but we ask that question at boardroom tables. How are you housing your employees? And across the province, we talk about housing at every level, um, because if we just do it one piece at a time, 4,000 units is great, but that's 0.07% of the province. Um, I'm afraid it's just not going to be enough in our lifetime. What would you tell them then if you could sit down and say, here's how we think this needs to work? What would you tell them about steps to get this done? Because clearly this government, they're in the mode of getting things done. It is an election year. There is an opportunity here to kind of bend their ear on this. What would you say? Okay, great. Yeah. All right. So having the platform to say that, I think we have to learn from people who are wise. The Squamish Nation have set a target for themselves They will build a home for every member of the nation in a generation. I mean, that's leadership. So what if we said that that was our call across the province, a home for every British Columbian in a generation? And by every, I mean, I mean everyone. So that includes people who are couch surfing because they've had to flee domestic violence. That includes a student who doesn't know where they're going to live next month when they get their red seal. And that includes somebody who has complex needs, who lives on the downtown east side, who is right now housed in the most dangerous, unsafe buildings possible. And there is this working group that has been stood up. We understand housing and safety. I think I think government needs to sit down and meet with people who have expertise, and then we just need to get it done. But what are we talking here? Even if we were to start that process now, are we not still talking about like a couple of years where we would see the end result? 
Right. So in the meantime, we have infrastructure right now that needs to be invested in. So maintenance and repair is not being done on social housing units. They are sitting empty across the province. And the different CEOs of the supportive housing societies have said that they have units sitting empty because they are simply not able to get the money from BC Housing to invest in those. So that is a whole bunch of units. Let's that, you know, at least invest in our existing infrastructure. And in the meantime, as we have been talking about, finding properties and starting to build in every different size and configuration of housing, I, I think it's completely possible. We know that there is investment available. Government does have the budget to do it. So let's just start. Right. Catherine, so when we say unit, though, what do we mean? Are these homes or are they, again, are we falling into a trap of something like a single room occupancy, which is not a home? Well, you know, such a great question because we do have um, a, a history, really, of saying this is temporary exactly. and then it becomes permanent. But, you know, isn't that just the open question now? We have seen how temporary becomes permanent. We need to say it can't become permanent. But at least uh, for a start, it actually gives people a sense, particularly for people who are vulnerable, have complex needs, that we begin to get them support and the help that they need to become the people that they're meant to be. And then we have a plan and we say that this is only going to be for this period of time. Um, And then they move right into a unit that's been purposely built for them with support. And I, I totally agree we can't say something is temporary and move it into permanent. And communities don't want that either. Right, um, but, but we have a tendency to kick the can down the road, don't we? Yeah, we do. Yeah, totally we do. I mean, that's a natural human reaction, or maybe it's a natural government reaction is because we lose interest in getting to the outcomes. We need to set some goals and deliver on those. Like Katira operates 3,000 housing units for women and children and all genders, and You know, that is crucial, but so do all the other social housing entities. And at at this point, we are we are precarious because of a lack of funding and investment in even the existing infrastructure that we have. Well, Catherine, thanks for talking to us about it today. Thank you, Simi. Appreciate that time. That's Catherine Room, interim CEO of Atira Women's Resource Society. Uh, I am curious too, like we that we do have a tendency to do that, where we say, okay, this is a temporary solution. Remember all the modular housing units? That was great. Temporary solution. And then what happened when we could no longer keep those temporary uh, areas open? Well, where are people supposed to suddenly go at that point, right? So what is the overall plan, I think, is what Catherine was trying to say. And it's a good question. What is the overall plan on that? If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. It is tough to be a comedian these days. And I I can sympathize with that because it's funny until one moment happens and it's not funny and then you're canceled. That's it. It's over. But yet some people still want to try it. They still want to push that envelope. Our Scott Schantz is with us now to talk about someone who has been doing that for 30 years. Good morning, Scott. Yeah. And good morning. And you're, you're absolutely right. It's got to be the hardest thing to be a comedian oh, yeah. and figure out what what is allowed and what isn't. And I know a lot of people have different opinions on that. And we're in the middle of Just for Laughs. Just for Laughs Vancouver and uh, pre- performing at Just for Laughs is Marlon Wayne. Now, if you're like me and you grew up in the 90s, the Wayans brothers were synonymous with funny. 
uh, in living color. Okay, I was gonna say I grew up in the '80s, and so uh, to me, in living color was revolutionary. Like I was, I think, 18, 17, 18 when that show started, and it right away you knew I've never seen anything like this before. Totally, and even then, like that pushed the boundary for that time. Like I wasn't allowed to watch in living color, so I would go over to my friend's house and watch it, so I could talk about it with my friends at school the next day. But like the Wayans brothers were a huge part of that. Uh, Marlon Wayans was in Scary Movie 1 and 2. White Chicks, Don't Be a Menace to South Central While Drinking Your Juice in the Hood, one of my favorite movies of all time. And uh, I got a chance to talk with him, and this was such a thrill for me because he was like one of my favorite comedic actors. And because he's performing it just for laughs, I started by asking him, how is stand-up different than doing these movies that you know you're so well known for? Um, definitely different because it's, it's stand-up. It's not, uh, it'll be just as goofy, just as crazy. But I think uh, when it comes to stand-up, I think you got to say a little bit more and you got to be very truthful. Um, movies, you're just making fun of things um, that's out there. And I think when you do a movie, I mean, uh, stand-up, it's more personal. And uh, you have to come from a place of uh, uh, a uh, vulnerable place and uh, really tap in because you're, you're kind of doing half uh, comedy, half uh, self-therapy. Okay, that's interesting to hear you call it therapy because I was going to ask, like, you've been doing this for so long, uh, movies, uh, television, stand-up. Like, how, in the time that you've been doing it, how have you seen comedy change? Because I know, like, there's a lot of stuff that we used to think was funny that people say, like, oh, that couldn't be made anymore. Like, do you think that's true? How do you feel about that? Um, I think it's still, I think people still laugh. I think all that social media is making something up. I think people still like to laugh at dark things. Yeah. I just think you got to find a way to... To communicate those jokes better. You can't just punch down. You have to say something more. It needs more depth than it had before. You can still say crazy things. Yeah, like you, you mentioned, it's like almost like therapy, right? Going up there. And I think for me, as a person who loves comedy, it's, a, it's an opportunity for me to take a break from the pressures of my life and to sort of see... Uh, some of the stuff that's happening in the world in a, in a different light. And I think that comedians and people who do stand up, they give, they give that. And it's such a cool part of the art form. But tell me a little bit about how it's therapy for you. Like you find it therapeutic doing comedy? Absolutely. Because for me, I talk about the things that hurt me. And I go, what's funny about that? If I can make myself laugh and the audience laugh, then I've accomplished something. I've healed, healed myself from healing slowly myself of some of the wounds I have, some of the scars I've, I've obtained, and uh, gifting the world healing, right? Because we all go through similar stuff. You know, there's themes and things that happen in life, death, uh, things of that nature that we're all going to deal with, you know, grief, you know. There's, you know, so for me it's finding the humor because then that's really uh, healing for other people because they'll know how to get through it. Yeah, that's brilliant. I love to hear people that I look up to get vulnerable like that because it's like it gives other people permission to be vulnerable themselves. And I, I mean, I know we're supposed to be talking about comedy, but I just I love how 
the thing for me with comedy, and I think you kind of alluded to it there, is it's like nothing is off limits. You know, if it's going to be funny in the future, why can't it be funny now? And I like the way you said you have to find the right way to do it without punching down and with explaining a perspective. Because uh, like your worldview is going to be different than my worldview versus you know uh, other comedians that we might see it just for laughs. And it's a unique opportunity to kind of you know show the audience how you see it. And to make them laugh while doing it. I just, and again, like, that's what I got from your movies, you know? Like I said, I grew up and I watched, like, Boys in the Hood and Menace to Society. And so much of that was so shocking to me. And then I watched Don't Be a Menace to South Central While Drinking Your Juice in the Hood. And I'm like, uh, okay, like, it's a way to process these same sort of things with a... Yeah, what's funny about it? Yeah, yeah. You know, Boys in the Hood gave you what's sad about it, the way it sounds... But here's what's funny about it. I love that. And again, like that hasn't been my experience, but like, was that your experience? Did you have to use humor to like cope with some of that stuff while you were growing up? Absolutely. Humor got me through. Humor was my lifeline. Yeah. Humor, some people had sports. I had humor. Yeah. I'm very grateful to God. That he gave me that outlet. Really looking forward to your show, Marlon Wayans. He's going to be at the Queen Elizabeth Theater on this Saturday. That's the 17th of February. Uh, tickets available at jflvancouver.com. Marlon, awesome to talk to you. Really looking forward to the show. And like I said, man, you provided the soundtrack and the entertainment to my childhood. So really cool to talk to you. I appreciate that. Thank you, brother. So, Simi, hearing someone who does this professionally say that, like, some people have sports, other people have humor. That's what they use. That's what gets them through it. I get that. Do we think, do you, how, what do you think, like, is there ever a line for comedy? Yes, I do. Even though, like, walking up to that line and sometimes crossing it is going to help some people process. To me, it's about, and, th- and again, this is individual, but to me, it's about are they making a point. Are they are they commenting on the state of society with this joke? Or are they just trying to be outrageous and provocative and dumb? Yeah. And if, he- if there is a point to what they are saying, like I am commenting on society by doing this, then I get it. Right. But some comedians, Scott, are just not as smart as others. Some of them are just doing it for the clicks, the likes, the attention. And I feel like somewhere in there, there's a line. And I think knowing where the line is is how you get a 30-year-long career in comedy. And like you said, you don't punch down. You don't don't ever punch down. You punch up. But, yeah, I I was so thrilled to talk to him. Just a a brilliant comedian. I'm just thinking back, and you've got me thinking when you told me you were going to be interviewing Marlon Wayans uh, about shows like In Living Color and just how incredibly groundbreaking Jim they Carrey. Were. Yes. Jim, uh, Jim Carrey and Jennifer Lopez, two of the biggest stars on the planet, got their start on All that show. Of, I, for a long time, I thought that every person on that show was a Wayans yeah. relative yeah, yeah. of some kind. So great. So great. But see, it's different for you because in you also, you were young enough to have watched all those movies in the 90s. Yes. I, I watched Scary Movie 1 and 2 in the movie theater with my friends. <laughs> oh, like you're the a, one. With a big group of people just <laughs> laughing so hard. Like, just fantastic. And we would quote them and still do quote them. Huh. All those movies. So great. I think it's probably your generation's airplane. Yeah. Oh, you're totally right. Yes. For me, it was the movie Airplane, and I will still quote Airplane, and I can tell how old people are if they get my joke or not. Right. 
but for you, it's Scary Movie. Scary Movie is uh, is one of them. All the Wayans Brothers movies, all the Adam Sandler movies, you oh, know, Adam all Sandler, of those ones. Yeah. yeah, Jim Carrey. I've got yeah. a kid who is a huge Adam Sandler fan. All right, that makes sense. Thank you for that, Scott. You're welcome.